The fact is, if you've got a lot of data points and knowing how much can I pay a physician to get them to work for me, all things being equal, you're going to want to pay less rather than more as the employer. And so the offer you're going to get is going to be much more rigid because these bigger companies are going to have a better idea of how much do I need to pay to have this physician come in to fulfill this role. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. What's up, everybody? Justin here. Welcome to episode 24 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Really excited to be coming to you today solo from our global headquarters in University City, Philadelphia. Today I want to tackle the topic of discussing transitions in employment. And specifically, I want to outline four ways that you can use an employment transition in anesthesia or pain specifically to accelerate your path, your trajectory to financial independence. So whenever you're switching things up from an employment standpoint, it's a good opportunity to question the assumptions, to hit the reset button in certain important ways, and to become knowledgeable about certain things that maybe you didn't, <laughs> you didn't know about when you took your last job. And that might have cost you either personally or financially in certain ways. So whenever you're looking at new opportunities, whether if you're finishing up training or you're moving from one job to another, or you're with your current role and your current group and you've just about had it and you want to look for something that's a better fit, there's an opportunity here to be able to decide what you want, what you want your life to look like, um, reestablish what are your values and goals in life, not only financially, but from a personal career standpoint as well, and to allow that vision of your ideal future to be manifest in the current conversations you're having with a prospective employer. So I want to cover four areas today in which you can take advantage of a transition in employment or, um, you know, use this opportunity to, to move towards financial independence. And this is a, a topic that is a bit of a theme on the show. If you've been listening, you probably know, you know, going back to episode eight, when I talked to Dr. Leif Dahlin, also known as Physician on Fire, who described his journey where at age 40, he achieved financial independence. And you can, you can hear that episode, anesthesiasuccess.com slash eight, my conversation with Dr. Darlene. But what he found was because he lived significantly beneath his means for a very long time, he was able to get to a point where his invested assets, his portfolio, would cover his living expenses indefinitely. In spite of the fact that he actually made a couple pretty significant financial mistakes, he would, he would say, including buying a house that was way too much house in a geographic locale where he couldn't quickly sell it, had to sell it and take a loss. In spite of that fact, in spite of that mistake, he was able to, by the age of 40, be financially free so that he's now working on his own terms. He doesn't need to rely on employment anymore and his monthly paycheck in order to be able to support his family. So the, one of the main reasons that this is really important is because imagine how much psychologically, personally, how much less stressful your life's going to be when you're on a solid financial footing. And this is something that uh, Dr. Jimmy Turner and I talked about most recently in episode 22, just a few weeks ago, uh, anesthesiasuccess.com slash 22. And we discussed how your, how your financial situation can be a significant contributor to burnout among physicians. And if you need to take up 
pick up that extra call shift. If you need to be, you know, working your fingers to the bone and using vacation to do locums in order to get an extra paycheck to, to finance significant purchases or lifestyle, that is going to be a significant stressor for you. And that's going to manifest itself not only in your clinical practice, but in your relationships and in your, in your sleep <laughs> and in lots of other really fundamental ways that you just don't want to have your life adversely impacted in those ways. So having said all that, how can we move quickly at a, at a reasonable pace, but definitely in an intentional way towards financial independence? How can you as a physician take advantage of transitions in employment to give yourself a solid financial footing? That's what I want to cover today. And I want to look at four key ways in which I've seen both sides of this equation. I've seen people do it really well and people do it really poorly. But what I want for you is to be able to um, learn from others' mistakes. That's obviously the best types of mistakes to learn from, <laughs> the ones that other people make. Uh, to be able to position yourself for you know an optimal financial trajectory professionally. So the first thing I want to cover is in what ways does a transition in employment, contribute toward, give you an opportunity for moving towards financial independence. Number one is reevaluating what I call the big three. So it's where you live, what you drive, and your student loan situation. For many physicians, especially earlier on in your career, when you're starting out, these are the biggest expenses for you or big, biggest potential expenses, I'll say. And whenever you're switching jobs. As I mentioned, this is an opportunity to question the assumptions. So especially if you're moving from one city to another, but, but definitely in other ways, this is, a, this is a chance to make sure that you're doing handling these things optimally. So where you live, obviously this is your house or your apartment. Are you buying? Are you renting? And I want to talk about that more in detail in a little bit, but being able to evaluate what is your current domicile how much is it costing you? Is it appropriate for your needs? Is it limiting your mobility? Is it, uh, is it such that your mortgage payment every month is just absolutely crushing you where your 30%, 40% or more of your monthly income is going towards paying off your mortgage, the roof over your head? Um, or is it a much more modest percentage of your overall income? This is a good opportunity whenever you're transitioning in employment, especially when you're moving to say, what kind of house do I want? What kind of or apartment? Does buying make sense? Does renting make sense? Be very intentional and strategic about this, especially if you're earlier in your, in your career. In the first handful of years in your career, it's about a coin flip, 50% of whether or not you're going to be in that job for more than two to three years. So if you're moving somewhere, especially out of state, think twice about you know whether or not you want to buy a big house because if you need to move again later, that can be a significant liability. Um, secondly, what you drive. A car payment can be a big expense and a car is a depreciating asset, meaning you buy a car and as soon as you drive it off the lot, it's being devalued. So if you buy a $70,000 BMW, you drive it around for two months and if you want to sell it back, you're going to be looking at <laughs> taking a 15, 20, 25% haircut potentially on what you paid for the sticker price of that vehicle. So does it make sense to own a luxury car for you based on where you are in your career? In a perfect world, you would never buy a car that you didn't pay cash for. And the reason is, you know, you're on a monthly cash flow basis, meaning every month you've got money coming in and money going out. Do you have a monthly car payment going out the door every month towards a vehicle that's a depreciating asset? If your car is worth 70K when you bought it, and then 60K, and then 50K, and then 40K, as you've owned it for a few years, you're continuing to pay into that car, and it's worth less and less and less and less. 
compare this to real estate, which hopefully is, if not, it's, if not gaining value, it's at least not going to be losing a ton of value. But a car, if you drive it for three or four years, you can guarantee that by the time you sell it, in most cases, you're going to be making a lot less on the sale than what you put into it. So consider the auto expenses and just make sure that whatever you're doing is, is your car expense something that is manageable for you. And finally, student loans. So this is most uh, important to consider at the conclusion of training. So during training, you know, hopefully you're not in forbearance during residency. If you are, definitely want to reconsider that strategy because if you're in forbearance, what that means is you're making no payments on your student loans. Your interest is piling and piling and piling. And in some instances, you may literally have no choice because you just can't afford to live and make a couple hundred dollar a month loan payment on your federal loans. If you have all federal loans, however, there's income-driven options that we've talked about in the past here where, for example, revised pay-as-you-earn. If you're on revised pay-as-you-earn during training, during residency and fellowship, your payment might be as low as two, $300 a month. And during that time, the federal government is going to be giving you an interest subsidy on your loans. Could be several hundred or more dollars per month, depending on how much money you owe and some other factors. So you should probably be on an income-driven option during residency. But then once you conclude residency, understanding your loan strategy going forward is going to be very important. If you're going into private practice, if you're, especially if you're in pain, there's a lot less, there's a lot less opportunities for PSLF eligible employment in the pain world. So PSLF obviously is public service loan forgiveness. What that means is if you work for a qualifying employer, uh, an academic center or the VA or some sort of governmentally related entity, and you do that for 10 years and you make payments on an income-driven repayment plan for 10 years, at the conclusion of that time, you'll get forgiveness of your loans. Now, this tends to make the most sense for people who have been on an income-driven plan, like, again, revised pay-as-you-earn, potentially, or pay-as-you-earn, or income-based repayment. If you've been on one of these plans throughout residency and during your fellowship year, you're positioning yourself well to be able to take advantage of PSLF if you're going to go into an academic center or a qualifying institution. If you're going into private practice, either in pain or anesthesia, you're going to be putting yourself in a position where PSLF is not going to make sense, meaning your employment does not qualify. It doesn't make sense to continue to make minimal payments on an income-driven plan. You want to reevaluate your loan strategy. So this is a good opportunity to say, what am I doing with my loans? Am I moving towards forgiveness still? Or am I moving towards full repayment strategy? If you're going to fully repay your loans, in other words, if you're in private practice, PSLF doesn't make sense and you need to just knock them out, it's a good time to consider refinancing. So if you're taking that first job out of training and you've got a bunch of loans and you're moving into private practice, definitely consider, does a private refi make sense? And what a refinance is, is whenever you take federal loans, in many cases, that are at 6 or 7% or more, and you go to a private bank like SoFi or Credible or Earnest, there's a bunch of them out there, that are all tripping over themselves to lend money to doctors. It's no secret that doctors make a lot of money and have great job security. And especially in anesthesia and pain, there's great earning potential here. And you can get a great interest rate on these loans. So you might go from owing 300K at um, you know 7% on a federal loan to owing 300K at 4%. 
So I'm going to just do some quick math here. 300,000 times 0.07 is $21,000 a year in interest alone. Whereas if you refinance, you're looking at $12,000 a year in interest alone at 4%. So just by refinancing, you can save yourself $9,000 a year in interest cost. So that's like getting a really nice raise for doing nothing except changing your loans over from federal to private. Now, there's other implications there that I will discuss in probably future episodes. But the point is, transitions in employment, especially moving from training to your first attending role, is a good time to revisit your loan repayment strategy. Am I going for forgiveness or am I going for full repayment? And am I doing it on purpose? Uh, similarly, you know, if you're moving from an attending role to another attending role and you realize, geez, I still don't have a good strategy for my loans, or maybe I'm trying to fully repay them, but I have federal loans that are at a higher interest rate. This is a good chance to think about doing a refinance at that point. So again, point number one, the big three, where you live, what you drive, and your loan repayment strategy. Thinking about these three in an intentional way is a great, it's a great opportunity during a transition in employment to hit the reset button, make sure you're handling things optimally. Number two, the big mistake that I see people make or something that some of my friends and clients have done well is understanding dynamics of negotiation. So if you're thinking about taking a new job or looking, shopping around, understanding what does it mean to negotiate? Am I willing to negotiate as a physician? Why or why not? Um, should I negotiate? Well, by the way, the answer is yes. Spoiler alert. Those who negotiate are going to be a lot better off financially than those who don't over the course of their career. Almost everything in life is negotiable, and it, it helps to think critically about negotiating, about how you're going to approach a certain employment offer before you sign on the dotted line. Because once things are locked in, it's very, very difficult to renegotiate when compared to negotiating before an agreement is made. And there's a number of things to look at with regards to negotiation, and I want to sort of tease out a couple of these ideas. One thing to be aware of in terms of negotiating is who am I negotiating with? If you're looking at a smaller private group, maybe it's a one or two physician pain practice and you're going to be doctor number three in the door, that negotiating dynamic is going to be very different from if you're signing on to one of the big anesthesia or pain groups where it's a very standardized system where if you don't take an offer, there's 37 people in line behind you who are going to be able to sign up very quickly. Knowing with whom you're negotiating is very important. And in broad terms, a bigger employer is going to have less flexibility. They're going to be more rigid. They're going to be more standardized in the employment agreement that they're offering. They might have an HR department and a legal department, and they're going to have uh, a more formulaic cookie cutter approach to the contracts which they're offering. And if they're a national group, they're going to have a lot of experience doing this all over America. And so they have a good sense of what the market rate is. And, and when I say market rate, what I mean is um, how can they pay the least and get the most? And I don't mean this in a bad sense, in a taking advantage sense, but the fact is if you've got a lot of data points and knowing how much can I pay a physician to get them to work for me, all things being equal, you're going to want to pay less rather than more as the employer. And so the offer you're going to get is going to be much more rigid because these bigger companies are going to have a better idea of how much do I need to pay to have this physician come in to fulfill this role. So understanding that as you're negotiating can be really valuable because 
you know, if you come in with, um, you know, anesthesia group ABC and they're offering you $350,000 and such and such call schedule and vacation, et cetera. And, and the terms are all pretty well established. And you say, you know, instead of paying me 350, I'm not going to take this offer for any less than 450 for a bigger group who, again, remember they've got lawyers and an HR department. They might have a recruiting team. They've got a lot of horsepower <laughs> deployed in the direction of finding new doctors they're going to be much less likely to want to flex. Maybe they can afford to wait because they can use a locums company to fill a role for a while. Or because they've hired three other doctors at 350 k in the last two months, they know that that's a really good price point for them and they don't need to pay you 450 Now, that doesn't mean that you're not worth 450 It just means that they might not need to pay 450 when they can pay the person behind you 350 so understanding this dynamic in the context of a bigger company can be really helpful. And, you know, it may make sense to try to negotiate on other things that aren't just the salary number, things like the um, non-compete non radius or what the vacation or call schedule is like, or even if it's not negotiating, making sure that you're very, very clear on the terms of employment so that there's no unfortunate surprises. And there's been a couple really great podcast episodes I've done in the past talking to some experts in this area, anesthesiasuccess.com slash five, my episode with John Apino talking about contracts and slash 19 talking with Jeff Sansweet, uh, who was an, he, Jeff was an attorney. He was giving us some feedback about other things to think about. Whenever you're negotiating, make sure you understand with whom am I negotiating and how does that impact the approach? Conversely, if you're not looking at a bigger group, maybe you're looking at a smaller group, or a smaller private practice, there's gonna be a lot more flexibility. Put yourself in the shoes of a two-partner, small physician-only practice, who are they're trying to bring in another physician. They're probably spending most of their time doing clinical things, and or, or even you know in a five or 10 doctor group. They're not gonna have a legal department. <laughs> they're not gonna have an HR department. Maybe they have an office manager. Maybe they have a consultant who's helping them to draft or refine an employment agreement, they're not going to have the resources and the access to all the information that one big anesthesia company ABC is going to be able to access. And in this context, they're going to be more interested in what is the personality of this physician like that we're hiring? Maybe we're willing to pay a premium. Maybe because this person is a really good fit, we're willing to pay a little bit more to get them in the door. Additionally, in a smaller group, there's other points on which you can negotiate beyond just pay. And so you're going to be able to negotiate pay more frequently in a smaller group, but you're also going to be able to negotiate things like time to be considered for an equity buy-in or non-compete radius or vacation or other things that, you know, if you're a good fit, they're more interested in getting someone who's a good fit. And they're, they also don't have the resources to have as good of a pulse potentially. It's not like this smaller uh, practice has hired three physicians in the last two months. And <laughs> if they have, by the way, and those physicians have quit, that's really important to know. But a smaller group just isn't going to have the resources. And so they're going to be more likely to work with you. So uh, one great resource that's out there having to do with negotiation, negotiation more generally is um, Harvard Law School website called the Program on Negotiation. And they have a great daily blog. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Uh, if you go to anesthesiasuccess.com slash 24, 
uh, you'll see it there. And what this is, is lots of great negotiating principles, ways to establish common ground with the person or entity with whom you're negotiating, understanding what do they want out of this deal? What do I want out of this deal? How do we find mutually agreeable territory? Lots of good insights there. So, you know, Understanding with whom you are negotiating you can make us make a huge difference. So definitely get knowledgeable about that and about with whom you're negotiating. And also when you're out of your depth, and by the way, I would say most people, I recommend that everyone use a contract review service of some sort. So again, episode five, we talked to John Pino, his company contract diagnostics does reviews of physician compensation agreements all over the country. Jeff Sansweet. Uh, is an attorney locally here in Philly. There's a bunch of others. I would recommend either getting a, a special review service like John's or a, a local healthcare attorney who has a big enough data set to be able to say, is this contract competitive? To help you understand the compensation mechanism, is it RVU based or percent of collections or is it a salary plus bonus? How can this thing go wrong? Understanding all those elements as you're negotiating and before you sign on the dotted line can make a huge, huge difference. So that's number two. Understand negotiating dynamics before you sign on the dotted line can make a huge, huge difference. Number three, how can you move towards financial independence in the context of a, an employment transition? Number three is celebrate in a one-time way. So we want to celebrate, right? I believe in celebration. Whenever you achieve a milestone, whenever you get a new job, whenever you finish training, it's a great thing to commemorate all the hard work you've put in and to you know, reflect on all you have to be grateful for. It would be way better from a financial standpoint to <laughs> celebrate in a way that doesn't result in recurring expenses. When my wife finishes residency a couple of years from now, I fully expect that we're going to commemorate that hard work that she's put in and the, the milestone that that represents for both of us, honestly. And maybe we'll go on a trip Maybe we'll, I, I know for myself, I want to buy a really nice bottle of bourbon, the most expensive bottle of whiskey I've ever purchased, for sure. Now, I don't know what I can get for two or three or $500 for a bottle of whiskey. I imagine it'll be something really great. But I also know that whatever it is, is going to be way less destructive for me financially than a $700 a month car payment or a $1,000 a month car payment um, or a house where I'm paying a mortgage that's $7,500 a month. Um, there can be a temptation to, once you've finally reached attending status, or once you've finally taken that dream job, to celebrate with something big that's a recurring expense that's going to really limit your financial flexibility. I would say if you can celebrate in a way that is really meaningful, allows you to commemorate, allows you to express gratitude, allows you to be happy with where you are and where you're going, but that doesn't lock you in <laughs> to a really expensive lifestyle, you're gonna be way better off financially. So again, this comes back to understanding your values and your goals. If financial independence is a value of yours and a goal that you wanna to move towards, then this is a no brainer. And buying a big house to celebrate that decision is something that is gonna be detrimental to what is ultimately a value of yours, which is uh, you know, being financially flexible in a way that is going to contribute towards your not having stress in your lifestyle. So just be circumspect. How do I celebrate in a way that is going to be meaningful, but not wreck me financially? That's number three. Number four, the fourth thing that I recommend as far as taking advantage of transitions and employment 
and it, I touched on this a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit deeper now, is consider renting early in your career, especially as you're moving between jobs. So here's the main reason I like renting for physicians. In the first couple years, you're getting a feel for what kind of clinical environments do I really like. You know, between residency and your first role, and maybe even your second role as an attending, you're still getting the lay of the land. You've only ever been in academic medicine, most likely, up to the point of concluding residency. You might think, yeah, I definitely want private practice, or I definitely want to stay in academics. And that may not be true. <laughs> and you might not figure that out until after you take that first job. So if you run out and buy a house, for example, we're in Philly. If you run out and buy a house in Philly, um, spend a million dollars on a center city, really uh, nice place, we now own a piece of the dirt here. Uh, real estate is an illiquid asset. It takes a long time to transact on in general if you're trying to get a good value for it. And it's it's costly to transact on. There's transfer taxes and you got to pay real estate agents. And it, it's a bit of a, a ball and chain to a certain geographic locale. And it can limit your ability to move between cities. Now, whether or not you think, you know, I you may or may not want to move across the country, but maybe you want to test the waters a little bit and you want to see, well, if I can make $300,000 in New York City practicing anesthesia, if I was to consider, uh, I don't know, somewhere like Cleveland <laughs> or somewhere like Denver or somewhere like uh, Dallas or something like that, somewhere elsewhere in the country, it may be that not only am I going to find a cheaper cost of living, I'm going to be able to find a job that's going to pay me a lot more. And if I bought a condo or a co-op in New York City, it's going to be really hard for me to move because I'm going to have to move across the country while I'm still making mortgage payments. I might have to try to find somebody to rent my place um, or I'm incurring a lot of expenses to prep and sell that real estate while I'm moving across the country. And in the process, it's just going to make you a lot less likely to move. And so if you think about the big picture of, again, with financial independence in view, how do I position myself with flexibility so that I can be able to move to take another job? where I can be able to make more or be able to have a better cost of living arrangement or maybe even do locums for a couple of years. You know, we talked to, in episode 17, uh, Kyle Hadley at locumtenants.com. He gave us some crazy examples and I had a couple other conversations with him separately about there's a lot of earnings opportunity if you're willing to be flexible, if you can move to different cities, to different states, even for a short period of time and fill a locum's need and make a lot of money in a short amount of time. That's a great way to accelerate your path towards financial independence and shorten the runway there so that you can be like, you know, physician on fire and by age 40, have several million dollars in the bank such that if you quit your job tomorrow, you wouldn't have to worry about it financially. Doesn't that sound like an amazing arrangement? And so not buying too much house early on, specifically renting for the first three to five years, can be a really wise move. Now, if you think my family is here, my spouse's family is here, there's literally no chance of us ever moving beyond this metro area, you know, you could make a case for buying a house more quickly because even if you do want to leave your current job, you may find another job in the same area. Now, be aware that if you've got a non-compete agreement and it's a 20 or 30 or 40 mile radius, uh, you might be... <laughs> If you leave that job, you might be hard-pressed to find something that doesn't violate your non-compete. But the point is, renting can give you that additional flexibility that can help really accelerate moving towards financial independence. So 
that's all I've got. These are the four points that I want you to consider as you're, if you're moving towards a transition, if you're thinking about a new job. Number one, consider the big three, where you live, what you drive, and your loans, and make sure that each of those has a strategy that you're pursuing on purpose. Number two is get wise about negotiating dynamics, understand with whom am I negotiating, what kind of flexibility do I have, and above all, do negotiate something, uh, because that is the easiest time to make more money. The easiest money you're ever going to make in your life is whenever you say, you know what, I need 10% or 15% more in my base comp, or I need a signing bonus of 10 or 15 or $30,000. That will be for enduring that 120 seconds of discomfort. That'll be the easiest money that you'll ever make. And you'll be locking in a, a salary that for all the years in the future are going, is going to be higher than what you would have had out of the box. Number three, celebrate in a one-time way, something that's not going to be a recurring expense. Get the nicest bottle of whiskey you've ever had. Take that trip to Europe, even if it costs you five or 10 grand. It's way better than paying a couple thousand dollars a month more in a mortgage or a car payment than you should be. And number four, consider positioning yourself early in your career by renting to be able to take advantage of different opportunities across the country to be able to make more. So that's all I've got for you today. Take advantage of these transitions. If you just got a new job, if you're in fellowship right now and you're vetting different opportunities, keep these things in mind. As always, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiosuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.